I took like Calvary. I almost said crapple. Chapel. Calvary. Grapefruit juice. Hey, friends. Are you hungry? Are you full? Are you sick of it? I don't know. I'll tell you one thing. Bon appetit, friends. We are back talking about food. We can't help ourselves. Last season was about food. And now we're going to talk about full-spectrum emancipation, this idea that there's an interconnectedness between our emotional, spiritual, and financial liberty. If we can get ourselves free in each of these areas, that is how we're going to be free indeed. Instead of recognizing the ways in which our food is tied into economic and political and historical issues and our body image and the way we grew up, all of these things are interconnected. So today's show is not really linear. We're just going to talk about music. We're catching up with Sydney, who got back into town after going down to Southern California again to visit family and friends. She's back, and we're reflecting on food and body image and some music that we listen to. This is more of a miscellany. So if you, if you want something more concrete and linear, maybe check out another show. But if you just want to come along for the ride with us and imagine that you're right here in the lounge chilling and talking about food, the positives and the negatives in our emotional experience related to food, then you're in the right place. And whoever you are, bon appetit. All right, Sydney, welcome back. You came in at 10 at night. You, uh, you had a little bit of a bumpy ride. <laughs> I don't think the listeners necessarily need to know that there was somebody puking. <laughs> yeah, they were well, puking they in know. the back of the plane as I'm trying to get out of the plane. So that was fun. And also the turbulence made me think I was certainly going to die. But, you know, we made it. But you made it in your back. And so you had just, uh, you had just spent some time. You went down to Disneyland. Where the um, the good yeah, the happiest place on earth oh God. <laughs> is it the happiest <laughs> place on earth for, for reals? It was. I mean, kind of was, but it was also the most horrifying place on earth at the same time. It just depended on who you were there. I saw some adults with rainbow hair having a lot of fun, and then I saw some very miserable people from the mm. Midwest with a bunch of screaming babies and everything in between. Yeah, lots of stuff. So, uh, but Disneyland, Disneyland, you know, we were talking about it while you were gone, kind of controversial, which is funny. And, Mr. And, Toad's Wild Ride. Oh, yeah, that's what we want to talk about. So, <laughs> everybody knows, uh, you know, that there are certain rides that, that, you, that, you, that get into you and they scare you. Some yes. kids, they go too quickly onto the Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, but one of the things, especially growing up with evangelical Christian students over the years... They have had a deep connection and pain and, and fear related mm -hmm. to Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. That one scared me the most, too. So what was the what was I remember being little. And I mean, part of it is um, like my boss background was being in foster care and dealing with police and stuff like that. But I remember the judge has the gavel and he pounds it down and he goes, guilty. And then all of a sudden you feel this heat all around you. And yes. it's like, you're burning in hell. <laughs> I mean, just Very horrifying. scary. Um, 
But you now I love it, and they actually took it out, and I was kind of disappointed because I was just <laughs> thinking it would be a fun novelty. Fun nostalgia. <laughs> it's probably better for the children. I don't know. <laughs> Did that ever bother you, Stacey? That one terrified me because I the first time I went on it, I had, I was starting to hang out with Scott Copeland, and his mom told me about the doctrine of hail, mm. and I didn't understand because she was from Mississippi that she was talking about hell, so. Then it started hailing out, and I was just—it was all confusing. <laughs> but, but um, when around that time that I learned about the doctrine of hell from uh, Scott's mom, um, that's when I actually got to be in that space where you really do kind of feel like you're going to hell. I mean, as a little kid, there's something weird about it. It's very real. Yeah, and it's a very short ride. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. Um, yeah you... Well, for me, I yeah, it's like one of those things where. You know, you're, I'm trying to enjoy the ride. Um, you know, there was a part of me that just sometimes thought that if I saw the wrong things or listened to the wrong things or maybe go on the mm. wrong ride, that somehow I'm going to attract like demons or something, you know? So, uh, so scary. for so me. So it's kind of your own fault if you picked up demons on the, to- the toad ride. Right. <laughs> oh, and so no. for me, what was scary about it was like, should I have experienced that? Because am I introducing myself to negativity that I don't want and inviting evil. maybe evil <laughs> into my life? And like, that's like a scary feeling just because like you went on a ride or just because you heard you played maybe light a certain, as a feather, stiff as a board. Yes. Or, or a certain you know. kind of music, you know, that you listen to or whatever that you're, you know, I forgot about those days, baby asking for the, the like, yeah, like the devilish messages are going to come in subliminally and <laughs> like the backward masking or whatever, yes. all these things. What but album is that? A lot of them. I they mean, was just, love the smoke man. Wow. And it was, I the think seventies albums. Yeah, oh, is it Pink Floyd? Or, no, Floyd. Zeppelin for sure. Yeah, they did Zeppelin, definitely Beatles. And sometimes people would put stuff backwards in, you know, and that's what mm-hmm. got people all, all worked up about. Well, it. they also did it once they realized everyone was freaking out about it because <laughs> it's just funny to fuck with people. But, but, what I, they- but I think, though, it's interesting about Disneyland for me um, because, like, it feels sometimes like you're in the area where there's kid rides, but they're very adult rides. And so, yes. um, like, all that's of the so evil women, the, all the evil ladies always scared me. So for me, like, I personally preferred to like stay in like it's a small world land part and some yeah. of the, some of the, the other days some I of like the other the darker rides. ones kind of well but i so what mm. i what i'm saying is is like you know again being you know near that mm. that evil or that darkness would somehow like if, right if, just if, having if the could, witch in there if it could get into me oh, you know yeah and so what so yeah so for me it was you know almost like you know, just stay, I really didn't explore many of those types of rides until like literally I'm there older, uh, you know, yeah. with probably you, I, mean, I did, never even went on Mr. Toad's wild ride until really? high school. I don't oh, think. so you didn't, you didn't have the same kind of well, childhood. But, so then what yeah. happened? They got rid of that part. So what do they do now? Does he die and go to a universalist liberal heaven? Well, there's no <laughs> loud um, sound. So I believe the judge is there, but he's not like yelling guilty at you Mm. and slamming a gavel and there's Mm. no heat and the hell part is just like totally gone gone. so you just turn a corner there's no because it's the very last part and so what's yeah and what's the purpose of the ride what's from the book it's from the movie it's the old story so i mean he's kind of like an outlaw the toad what i'm saying though is like at the end if they don't like do they like it just doesn't have an ending or they just don't well i guess the ending originally i think is you know, he gets free from being in jail or whatever, and then it's a happy storybook gotcha. ending. Everything's cool again. Gotcha. He escapes from the, the bad jailers, and 
then everything's oppressive people. Right. Because he's a good guy. He's just not. So he doesn't get condemned to hell. Yeah. A little, a little bit naughty. Now, here's the thing. We're not mainly talking about Disneyland, <laughs> but we are interested. I'm, uh, I'm interested in going back just a little bit to a little bit of an addendum related to last season and food because we were just talking about it and it was coming up and, and uh, it fits with our overall interest in full spectrum emancipation, being free in all parts of our lives and the ways in which our psychic problems, our, our emotional problems relate to food is something that we were talking about. So we want to loop back to it. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad uh, when we have these memories and these deep connections. But on the issue of Disneyland, uh, even though I am very, very happy not to be eating meat anymore, there is one part <laughs> of me that wants to go back down to Disneyland to go on the <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean. Haunted Mansion was interesting. Oh, yes. But the, but the part of the Pirates of the Caribbean is I remember I used to go <laughs> to Disneyland and we had like the eight brothers and sisters. So we would have, you know, maybe just some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Mm-hmm. Perfectly acceptable. But I always like I looked up. At all the at all the families that were eating the chicken dinner, and they had oh. they were clinking mm-hmm. the plates mm-hmm. like I could hear them clinking plates, and they were eating meals with mashed potatoes. Oh. And I always said, someday I'm going to do that. I'm 48 years old now. I still have not been able to do that. Probably some fresh rolls. With well, ter- we can go to terrible. Disneyland if you really want. I don't think no, I really want to. But if I'm at Disneyland, I want to go there. You're so right because I, you know, we never could afford. Oh. That, you know, I mean, the food at Disneyland it's, is expensive no matter what. And then if you're going to now go to the restaurant inside the ride, then you're really paying. And I'm sure ride. it's not delight. I'm sure it's not the best. It's Honestly, <laughs> like I've been, I never really did that kind of shit growing up until this brief period in my life where my stepdad was just trying to woo my mom with finances. Mm. And they kind of suck. It's not really worth it. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I'm sure it's not that great. But so we're talking about food. And one of the things that was really, I think, let's start on a positive note. Yay. I'm really excited because, uh, you know, Sydney, you and Augie and your friends had, had gotten into kava and you told us to, to get into it. I love kava. One of the coolest things near where we're sitting right now in Portland is Nalu Kava. It is, it is an amazing space. Stacy, how would you describe it? Like, what like, kind of paint a picture? Well, it, um, it's one of those things where if you're if you're stressed out and you just walk in there, it takes your stress level down like probably ten percent at least, <laughs> if not more. Um, where it's just you know it's a very quiet setting. Um, the person that um, serves you is like very calming and relaxing, and there's like a like a nice like cadence, you know, to the whole yeah. thing of just like, before you even have any tea. It's like yeah, it's it's, it's like relaxing. It's not the kind of place that I would want to bring my laptop to. Um, but no. I would definitely want to bring my say my journal yeah. or um, something like that. Maybe we should do that tonight. Um, and they have different spots, so you could sit on a rug carpet with a bunch of pillows and a tiny table or a two person table or the bar. And I'm not one to like any like hot chocolate drinks, but they are, are like are chocolatey drinks. It's not hot chocolate <laughs> in the same sense. It's right. like a gourmet There's a mushroom thing, one. And it's really super yummy. Like yeah. all, all the various teas, even if you don't like kava, there's lots of super yummy um, tea options. But it's just, it's a place where you can go and just like kind of let your guard down because the universe is going to be okay for like that next hour while you're there. Now, uh, so that's just the setting. 
And it's really nice because it goes from like five o'clock to 11 o'clock. And so it's an alternative space. And if you're thinking, hey, I want to go out drinking, you can have something different. And it's it's gonna it puts you in a different space. Saves now, some money too. Kava, right? It's I mean it, it really does save you money. Now kava um, is something that is maybe somewhat controversial in the sense that there are claims made about it. People really swear by it for its its health benefits, and sometimes like the medical world will say, uh, you know, we haven't we haven't verified this or that aspect of the claims. But one thing that does seem to be the case with all the studies is that while it may not you know, resolve a, a high anxiety disorder, like, you know, something that's kind of chronic with you. If you have, um, just like you're having an anxious day, it will take down your anxiety in the short right. term. So it's supposed to boost your mood, sociability, and creativity. And the way it works is it actually has reverse tolerance. So you want to start off with having a couple of shells to feel the effects. And then... Um, Later on, you could just have a few sips and start to notice the effects of it. So it's kind of cool that it has a, like a reverse tolerance mm -hmm. to it. But I have heard that I know people that do it every day, but supposedly if you do it too much, it does start to affect your liver. Not as bad as alcohol, but right. in a similar kind of way. So I think around once a week, twice a week is probably perfect. And it's and it's you know everything that we're doing. Your coffee can have some negative effects. There's you yeah. know everything that you that you get. There's like a you know risk reward. But for me, I would say certainly if I were trying to stop drinking, if I had a problem with alcohol that I needed to cut out. That feels a lot healthier, even oh, if it's definitely. just relationships, my attitude about life, my ability to go take a nap and, and get good sleep. I can say I've experienced a little bit of anxiety lately. And every time I've gone within within just, you know, a, a few a few cups, um, I'm I'm back on track. So we're not medical doctors. We're not nutritionists. No. Yeah. But we can say, I can say for sure that I highly recommend trying at least once or twice as an alternative to going out drinking. And you don't have to have kava at these places often. There'll be some other kind of non-alcoholic tea. I love the mushroom Great tea teas. selection. They had like the little, like a little uh, shot with like pepper and ginger. ginger and turmeric and all that. So it's just a fun way. And then they've got plants hanging and so forth. So that's been a really that's been a really nice positive thing. And so, listener, if you know if you're bored, you want to think about something fun and different to do, go check out check out Kava. Do your research on it. But also the flute wizard. That's that's <laughs> the best. So in addition to talking about food, I got what is run down since we've come to Portland. Some of the highlights of the music that we've been able to experience. And for me, the my favorite part of it is as Stacy was talking about. Sometimes because you have spaces that don't require as much rent. You can afford to have creative, open mic, smaller, you know, independent artists and so yeah, forth. Yeah, I found in, um, yeah, California, it seems like uh, even some of the smaller venues, I don't know, seem to have kind of disappeared. Uh, like where places where, say, when you're in a band and, yeah. you know, you want to like, you live in the neighborhood and you're looking for a place to stay or stay, play, I mean. Yeah. Um, it seems like you kind of need to be a certain level uh, I think it's because the rent is so high in California yeah. that, that they're going to have to insure certain ticket sell, sales. and That's definitely true. Or even, you know, with my friend Alex, he started going to 
you know, Anaheim or different areas kind of further away just because yeah. where do you go? Yeah. And no one's really going out for seeing concerts and nightlife around at least the Orange County. the other County. thing is and you have to drive so far to mm-hmm. get to everything. Yeah. I mean, even like I, I loved Belly Up. That was, you know. Belly Up's great venue. It's one of the best spots. But you, it's, a, it's a hike for where we were. Mm-hmm. But we used to have we used to have the Gypsy Lounge. Chris Frohart and Bliss used to play there. Uh, Rocco DeLuca. Mm-hmm. There were some really fun acts that you could catch. And they're just getting harder to find. But we we really have have I think hit hit some uh, some home runs with the the stuff that we found. Just the local flute mu- local wizard. music. And... Just start with the flute wizard, Kyle Needig. This guy, the flute wizard, um, he had an array of flutes that he had carved himself out of Pacific Northwest driftwood and bamboo. So, and he was a guest musician at the tea at place. Nalu, the, the Kava place. And he cared and loved each one. He was yeah. like, each one played in a different tone, came from a different tree. He told the full backstory on it and how he made it, basically. It was really cool. Yeah, and he told us about the, the mode that it was in, and it was just hypnotic. It was so wonderful. And so I uh, really uh, got into the idea that that analog type of meditative space is something I need more of. A lot of the time, if you go and get a... A, like a yoga playlist on Spotify. A lot of it is going to be good, but it's very synth heavy. It's very digital. And there's something really nice about hearing the very herbal tones of the wood that was carved by hand. Well, and you could feel his energy and love behind it. And I was meditating through the whole thing, but I could literally feel it in my back. And he's like, these are for the back chakras. Yeah. And you would feel it. You're yeah. like, this is magic. I don't know what this flute wizard is doing, but yeah. it's positively affecting me. Yeah, there was there was definitely a way in which he brought the whole space with a couple, you know, loud mouse over in the corner. But the, the, he brought the space into kind of an, a meditative experience just by playing music. It was it was that classic musical magic, you know. Mm. Uh, so I, I I thought that was delightful. And uh, here's a little sample of Kyle Needig, the flute wizard. So then we had one of the most amazing experiences where I think all three of us cried most of the time. Mm. I've never been to a concert where I was just sobbing, sobbing most of the time. What was this? Jacob Collier. Jacob Collier. So good. And we, um, the Portland venue was already sold out and yeah, we busted down to Eugene. So we went one. all the way down to Eugene on, um, yeah, just. So we wanted to not miss this concert, and it was, ended up being, it was called An Intimate Night with His Piano. So it was right before his big tour was starting, um, and it was just this amazing um, night of, like, seeing somebody, like, conduct the crowd 
and having so many people that attend are musicians themselves. And so they were, you know, the audience is singing, you know, and he's like, like, I don't know, just like he played the the audience. Concert hall, um, symphony kind of crowd, you know. But I, I, I know you're saying this, but I think his magic is such that he can make, I would think he can make almost any crowd sound like an organ because what he does is he just goes in the corner and goes Ooh, yeah and he gets them Ooh, started Ooh. and then just by kind of moving his hands up he magically creates this transcendental space and the thing i can say is i think anybody going and seeing it would say that was powerful that was great mm-hmm. but it is hard to explain how different the improvisational jazz is that he does and he really does remind me of of a new era of people who Even, are kind of living in a different kind of more technical, technological, a digital world or something, you know. He even did covers on stuff that I don't even like, like Coldplay songs. But when he does it, he totally reinvents it and brought so much beauty out of it. Yeah. It was interesting. And, I, and you know, he it's one of those things where there's people that often know how to, you know, like play an instrument like he understood all of the instruments so that in a soulful way yeah so that he can tweak with it in unconventional ways like yeah, he, mm-hmm. he intimately could feel he, he played with the piano strings and and mm-hmm. just yeah he was a, it, it was i have to say for anybody who gets the chance to check him out on tour Jacob Collier, it doesn't even matter if you like normally going to concerts. This is an experience that I've never quite seen in any other format. Highly, highly recommended. Here is a sample of Jacob Collier. had the opportunity to go to a cute little saloon just down the road under a bridge it was just perfect you know it was perfect portland rainy uh, but it was a guy we've been looking to see for a while i've been following him just because um i only know one thing about him at the time and that is he's the only modern musician <laughs> that i know that has a track on any streaming platform about guanyin <laughs> and um of course at the time you know, when I was when I was searching that, I was really interested in if you know anybody had any songs about. Well, and any, and there's obviously mantras and things online. I mean, you were looking at that time any books or any information, pretty yeah, much grabbing just, anything you can. We had on just seen, yeah. What do Fosha. people know about Guanyin and what's been you know researched and written? And lo and behold, it turns out that this guy is right up my alley for other reasons. Mm-hmm. He's a, a leftist kind of um, anarchist leaning seemingly uh, americana musician he's, he's Lives in, in his folk van tradition. he's a van life dude and he's like he in his and i in his partner she has a, a upright bass and they just they cruise around in their van and they 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 brought a message they brought a a message of empowerment um and it was really nice because 
sometimes you feel lonely, especially if you know, we had spent so much time in a place that was heavily right-leaning. Mm-hmm. And your assumption is that most people that you're going to meet are, are not sympathetic to the plight of workers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and here he is, and he's singing songs about, you know, kind of like that Woody Guthrie tradition where he's reclaiming the people like Jesus. Yeah. And and bringing kind of inspiration to people to to push against the system. Well, and I, yeah, and you know, look at the true teachings of Jesus and sing. He was singing about it, and like <laughs> there were quite a few songs where I'm like feeling like, okay, I think I'm going to uh, church now, <laughs> and this is like, you know, um, but. You know, I, think, so, I never got yeah. that kind of feeling, though, from his style of, of doing it. Well, I'm saying church in the good way. Right. Uh, when you're getting what a church teaching, should be spiritually yeah. for you. Going <laughs> with other people and saying, yeah, are we all crazy or are we getting crushed by the economic system? Right. <laughs> you and, know? and should we love you know, each other? It's like he has, you know, the ability to like truly look at what Jesus's message was and, and sing about it, even against a lot of what you know, you might hear about Jesus from the churches. And certainly not the main thing. I mean, he only has had maybe one or two songs about that, but he also is somebody who is in that category. I think that I talk about of like spiritual anarchist. I mean, he might be a democratic socialist for all I know, but he has those, those good, you know, core leanings and that, and that freedom being a rambler live in the van life. Uh, We picked up an album and it's really cool. I like what he does. He has, liner notes that are actually just a book. <laughs> so artists now, they don't have the opportunity to really sell anything other than you can sell vinyl. But if people don't want to collect a lot of vinyl, it's hard to, to really figure out how to make How do you make money? money? <laughs> so by having the liner notes, by having stories and, and having a little book for each album that you could also stream online, I thought that was really nice. Mm-hmm. And here is a track from that new album. This is Scott Cook. I love this country. I love the people and the land But there's a lot of stuff happening that I can't understand We got billions for bailouts We got trillions for wars But it's hard for working people to make a living anymore Hear me out for a second This ain't a partisan song It ain't about right and left, it's about right and wrong. We're fighting over the scraps while a few are living like kings. Cause screwing us over's a bipartisan thing. And it's working people who made this country great, not the greedy opportunists or the peddlers of hate. If a new day's coming, it's gotta come from you and me. Oh, say can you see? See, I got a neighbor. We don't always agree. He's a bit of a redneck, according to a hippie like me. But if you're in the ditch, he'll pull you out. I know he. And that's more than I can say for all those dickheads on the hill. He works hard for his family. He's got loyalty and pride. The company took all he gave and then cast him aside. Cause 
there's profit in poverty Hell, there's profit in prisons And they don't even pay taxes They just buy politicians But it's working people Who made this country great Not the greedy opportunists Or the peddlers of hate And if a new day's coming it's gotta come from you and me Oh, say can you see Oh, say can you see The last artist that I had fun, we, we, we saw some other stuff, and it's not like friends that we all we do is we spend our time just at going to concerts, though it's nice having a few uh, around. <laughs> nice having well, some and, options. And I think- you know, so far, one of the huge, like, common denominators of all of these things are that, like, these, all these musicians that we're talking about, like, there, there's, like, there, there's, like, not only a passion there, but um, I would almost say, like, a purity or, uh, you know, a beauty. Sincerity, Sincerity for sure. and Intimacy, definitely, and, yeah. a, and a beauty to, um, you know, watching them do their, their thing, and you just feel like you're in a positive space, like, that. You know that they're good people. It's genuine. <laughs> you and, know? and in each of those even cases, if they're singing a sad song, it's yeah. a genuine, you know, song. Mm-hmm. I didn't get the sense that there was a lot of ego involved, and that's no. hard to find with artists. So, but then um, an, another one though, I was really loving the the last artist that we got introduced to was Ezra Rose. She was opening for somebody, but I really found her stuff pretty powerful. And she, um, but she kind of seems like that that perfect Portland spunky <laughs> spirit, you know, and it was, I mean, she was rocking. She's definitely feisty. <laughs> she has a song called no means no. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but she just was rocking and it was, there was something so nice about being in this local venue that we walked to. That was She's nice. Playing guitar on the floor. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty, <laughs> pretty, pretty crazy. cool. Yeah. So, Hey, here's a little bit of Ezra Rose. Check this out.
this music, enjoyed the food that came with the music, enjoyed the fact that going to some of these pubs, you're convinced that even, you know, I mean, any any place we go is probably going to have a good vegetarian option. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's been really nice. That's been really helpful. And I'm feeling I'm feeling physically healthier a month into Portland in terms of my diet has gotten better and I'm walking a lot. Yes. So, you know, I, I have, I think I've, you know, I've lost a few inches in terms of my belt, my belt buckle and so forth. So I'm feeling good, but we were kind of reflecting on how sensitive that topic is, even when you think that's the right direction you want your physical body to go. And so Sydney, would you mind sharing and just kind of re- recounting, like kind of just your so, experience going back home? So, for an example, um, I just recently visited one of my friends in LA, and her sister was sick for about two weeks, just throwing up, feeling terrible, couldn't keep any food down, and she lost like a lot of weight. And so she goes back to work, and everyone's like, "Wow, you look so great! Um, you know, what'd you do? This is awesome!" And she's like, "I haven't been eating for two weeks. That's what I did." Not, you know, by choice, but similarly, um, from grieving and and sometimes it just being hard to eat. And then also the concept of when you have so much in your life that is uncontrollable, it's just going to be thrown at you. It's easy to fixate on, well, this is something I can control in my environment. And so I definitely lost a little bit of weight. And one of the first things that my friends one of my best friends for I've, who I've known for my whole life said to me was, wow, you look so great. And um, it just made me feel like shit because mm. I was like, well, I'm not, you know, doing well. But a lot of times people assume thin means, oh, you're doing great. You must be really healthy or something. That you're taking care of yourself yeah. or something. Mm. It's like. And that the opposite wouldn't be true because that's yeah, definitely not always the right. case. You can be eating very healthy and have a, a body type where you're going to gain weight more easily. And you're certainly more healthy than the person who's looking perfectly thin but smoking two packs a day and mm. not eating, you know, and drinking coffee all day. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a yeah, there's an odd thing. And I've you know, we've lived in many different places and I felt it, um, you know, most intensely in California. Me Uh, too. (laughs) That basically, yes, that thin equals good. Absolutely. No one's worried about you if you're thin. And sometimes that... They should be. They could be, yeah. Right. right. There's a lot of times where people should be worried. And I guess, I think that, uh, I think we would all do well uh, to, you know, not comment on people's appearances and especially not their weight. Now, right. if, if somebody is sad time is rejoicing and yeah. proud of like, you know, that they like, have, yeah, made I lost a hundred pounds because I've been exercising yeah. and eating right. Then yes, cheer them on. But to make assumptions that because somebody's lost weight to say, Oh, you look so good like, or this that is kind positive. of thing. Yeah. yeah. You just don't know what they've gone through or, or are going through or what health issues there might be that, you know, are not allowing them to, to keep weight on and stuff. And it just is, um, it just reminds me of just like in California, especially as a, you know, a female Southern California, uh, Southern Cal- yes, yes. Southern Orange California, County. Orange County. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, mean, I, I need the to qualify OC. that. Yes. Yeah. Um, there was so much pressure, uh, from a very young age to be weight conscious and, uh, you know, 
I know that a lot of times like growing up, but you know, my, my mom and the different neighbors and stuff like I'll, you know, get into like, I don't know, the latest pill that will help you lose weight. The back in the day, the latest diet. Sometimes the green coffee bean. Yes. All you ladies started getting kind of Mother's like little hoppers. Yeah. <laughs> they used <laughs> to sell meth way. at CVS for housewives. <laughs> and the idea, like, is all this stuff that kind of, like, you know, get your body moving and stuff, you know, and you're going kind of crazy, but <laughs> but you'll, you're going to. It's like, be productive, burn all be these productive, calories. look hot, look hot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and it's just, I, I think it's just, it's so sad uh, what that does. Especially when you're being, as a young person, being brought up through that. Um, Absolutely. But any of those, like, it, it's it's so crazy how uh, that thin could be equated with healthy. <laughs> and it's it, we were talking last week about uh, this idea of cultural hegemony. It is interesting how, without being able to step outside of Orange County, I would have never realized how often the first conversation people had in my experience, and especially for women, was a comment on appearance. Yeah. So the very yeah. first thing you're doing is that. And I then, I didn't realize that until I came here to Portland. And I, this is not going to be a podcast, friends, of just why Portland rocks. And, <laughs> but, um, but, I, but sometimes you just getting, getting out of your original situation helps you to see the healthy and unhealthy things that you just took for granted. And I, I find it interesting that people don't even seem to notice my appearance uh, as often. Uh, what I'm wearing would cause people to want to be angry at me sometimes. You know, I, in I would wear, in, in, in Southern, Southern California. California. Or I'd have a hat, and then people would, even if they liked it, they'd comment. They'd have to. They'd have That's to. That's unconventional. Yeah. Right. So, right. There, somebody always has to say something. Now, here, people do comment on how much they love your frog knit hats. They but see. they mean they it. See. They do love it. Yeah. And so that's great. Like there's like, there's like, Hey, like high five. They're but, not saying it. Cause they think I'm might be a weird person for looking different, but I'm a, <laughs> I'm a dude. Right. And so I, I'm not normally a, a, attuned to this, but I noticed that even for me, when I'm introducing myself to somebody here, I just have less of a sense that they're just scoping me out. Mm. just to kind mm-hmm. of figure That's out what, the, what, what their relationship with me is ought to be, you know? The other interesting thing is, is as we're meeting people, almost nobody has ever really asked us, what do we do? Where in California, yeah. that's it's like, like one do? of the first right things right. that come up in It's Southern never California. come up. And I almost feel like I would be a bad person for asking the neighbors what they do, <laughs> right? Like we just never have brought it up. Right. Yeah. It's maybe like grade. meet someone and get to know who yeah. they are. <laughs> and then through that, you'll find out what they do. It's weird. It's like asking how much money do you make? Yes. Right. As you walk up to someone. It's, <laughs> That's pretty much. It's like walking up to someone and being like, how old are you? Or yeah. how much do you weigh? It's just kind of like, really? Yeah. <laughs> but see, those things are again, part of cultural hegemony. These are these things that are programmed into us. And because these are the questions we're asking, because these are the, the, the cultural communications that we're having as you're a young person, you don't have to be told that your body image is something to be concerned about. It's just what people are saying to look at. This is the dashboard that they, that they've got. Well, and you're subconsciously learning it your whole life. Like you get your first little Barbie doll or whatever, and then there's TV and, and, all this stuff that you're constantly seeing. You're seeing Mm -hmm. your mom probably be obsessed with her appearance and weight. Like I remember having this concept in my head 
honestly, like my whole life, like as an eight year old, I felt weird about food. Mm. Well, let's go back to that because it's it's, it's a hard, it's a hard conversation, but that's kind of what we found when we were just thinking about food today. So to me, so interesting that, that food is so deep within us and that our relationship to food is so deep within us. So, um, so on the positive side, there are certain foods that I really like because, um, when I was growing up with seven brothers and sisters, I didn't feel guilty about eating them. Like so oysters. I, or... Yes. I have a very, my problem with food is because we didn't always have enough. Um, and there were so many of the kids that you felt guilty. It didn't, it didn't taste good. Mm-hmm. I, even as I'm thinking about it now, sometimes food makes me feel like I'm being a bad person. And that's mm. a hard thing for me to kind of overcome. But there are certain foods that I always feel joy when I'm eating because I don't feel guilty at all. For instance, yes, Stacey, you mentioned smoked oysters. Mm -hmm. Sardines. Sardines. Nobody wants them. There's a ton of nutrients packed in there. And so I'm going to eat this and my brothers and sisters will not be sad. sad. Likewise, if my dad was going to the grocery store to go pick out food, I'd I'd request grapefruit juice because I knew the kids would devour the uh, Minute Maid fruit punch or something, but (laughs) nobody wanted the grapefruit juice. So that'd be there for me. And so by developing those tastes... What did the grapefruit juice taste like? It tasted like freedom. Mm. The, the oysters tasted like this gift, this, this nutrient-rich gift that nobody is going to begrudge me. Mm. And the other one is I love seven-year-old kids' uh, dry spaghetti on a plate. So if I go to some, <laughs> if I go to a friend's house and they've got kids and then like maybe they, they feed the kids something like spaghetti and then we go out or something afterwards. And then when I come home and I see their leftovers caked on and I just scrape that right off a plate <laughs> yeah. and I'll eat that and it tastes like heaven to me because they're going to throw it away. So yeah. now I don't feel like a bad person. You're I saving the waste. I'm a good person mm-hmm. right. and I'm in, in a sense, not going to then require nutrient, well, nutrients and I, later. And the other thing too, that... It's through most, you're, you're finally getting to a point where you've been able to not do this. But um, whenever we would go out to eat or anything, it was always, you wanted, you didn't want anything to go to waste. And, right. it, and it felt oh. terrible. So almost to the point of hurting your belly. Yeah. You're if, so somebody bought, if somebody ordered too much food, then that part of the meal is horrifying to me because all I'm thinking about is how am I going to scarf this down? Without feeling guilty, leaving it on the table. Right. Because, well, <laughs> you know, there's always that point, too, where you're, you've are you eaten too much to really take it home. Mm. Yes. So, like, but it was really hard to just leave it on yeah. the table. And so... I've gotten into some... Like, when I've ever gotten a little bit too, too tipsy when I've gone out, it's because we decided to get a picture and everybody was standing up to walk away. And Mr. Jeff needed <laughs> to figure this out. Or you I think one of the first times was we went out, like, with the family and I was just turned 21... And my mom left a third of a, a carafe of red wine. Oh. And I was like, well, you can't do this. So I just, yeah. you know, I shotgunned that, that red wine. I was like, whoa, I didn't know that, like, booze could do this for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the other time, the other funny time was uh, we as a family had done communion preparation at our church. Oh. And, um, and so at the end, you're supposed to respectfully either... Uh, you know, do something with the leftover wine. It was easy to take the little wafers. You put those back in a little box and that was cool. But there's the wine that you could dump down the, down the drain. Or the, so with the or chalice, you could, right? You could drink it. This is, if you're, if you, you haven't been to a church, friends, 
you know how like some of your evangelical friends they don't drink but every every sunday morning they do drink a little shot glass they have a shot but it's jesus blood <laughs> and uh it's in the little it's in the little cuppy and uh boy oh boy um if you have 22 of those, <laughs> that'll fuck you it'll, up. It'll, it'll get you going. It'll get you going for Jesus. And so uh, that was a <laughs> fun, Jesus. that was a fun time, but there was no way that I was going to dump Jesus blood down the, the drain. That feels Especially a little disrespectful. Was, yeah. And it was also, you know, a very nice wine. wine. <laughs> <laughs> the kids always loved the church wine because they didn't realize, I think it was usually like a port mm. or something, you know, or mm. Manischewitz. It had a little sweetness to it and a very, uh, very nice punch. Sydney, sadly, because she's a paganist, uh, didn't get a lot of opportunities to have the Jesus, the Jesus juice. You say that, yet I have had to sit through so much of that bullshit. My well, when whole you visited life. our Lutheran world, you didn't, you didn't yes. have communion. I took like Calvary. I almost said crapple, chapel, (laughs) 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 grapefruit juice and like little plastic containers. But they didn't have wine. As a child. But yeah, I never did real wine wine communion until I went with you guys. Now, oh, no, and we know what is coming up very similar. Mm. You came with us to Good Friday at the Episcopal Cathedral in L.A. Yes, they put ashes on us. Yes, that was a heavy duty. Now, so those are my experiences. Stacy, when when you think about foods that are either have like a strong positive or negative thing related to your childhood, what what are your thoughts? I was always like conscious of my weight. The hard part that I felt is is a little bit um there was a little bit of like sabotage going on because we had we had like every single bag of chips that you could like yeah how the fuck like, are your legs supposed to and be small we had we drink <laughs> like the main staple in our refrigerator is soda you mm. know we, i mean that's we had we didn't drink water we drank soda so i would say lack of actual nutrition in food you know was definitely something that um yeah stuck with me um our pantry was filled with you know all of the middle of the grocery store items cookies and ding-dongs and well, we Twinkies. Can, we and can be non-judgmental and compassionate towards ourselves and our parents because, I mean, everybody probably growing up knows that in an earlier generation, people's nutritional understanding was much weaker. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you thought you had to drink milk right. and eat a bunch of meat and, you know. Those were just those assumptions that were, in, in, you know... Not explicit. Not understanding the effects of sugars and different fats and stuff. But I do think that that's a that is an interesting thing, Stacy. If you're saying, you know, growing up, if there's a there's an emphasis on not being overweight, but you're given tools that are conducive towards being overweight. I mean, right. like, you're you're giving you're given food that is really hard to process right. without gaining. Teach weight. kids yeah. how to make healthy food. Right. Don't just expect them to be attractive as a woman later. In life, because then all that garbage in your, you know, all that is then is deprivation. So the idea is you're going to have these, these foods, but empty calories don't eat, but also don't eat too much of it. So now Mm -hmm. you're just living in this feeling of deprivation. Whereas for me, when we were connecting up with the garden and, and better foods, I never worried about eating too much. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, it's like, well, this is good. And when I'm done eating, I'll, I'll stop eating. And there's a, there's a, that's been helpful. Yeah. Um, so like one of the things that I noticed uh, growing up in my family is that I, I felt like a lot of times when it especially came to dinner and stuff or, or any of the meal preparations, like maybe because my parents were just so busy or whatever, but it was more about, um, you know, going through and getting, getting the food done. Um, and just getting it over with. 
and less about a family coming together and like working on preparing the meal together and like chopping together or, you know, and doing things. And so I think that's one of the things that, um, like that I missed out on growing up is like learning how to cook by cooking alongside and with my well, And parents. I remember you saying something like your mom would kind of have the attitude of like you were just in the way then or kind of slowing her down rather than like wanting to teach and show you. Right. You know? Yeah. yeah. So that it was, yeah, I was one of those things where, like I said, the, I, the goal was to get the meal uh, cooked and ready to eat and not so much, um, yeah, the art of preparing a meal like enjoying it yeah and like when well, having the intimate connection with what it is right because when you start understanding what the food is and you're you're like well what are these ingredients and where is it coming from and like some of like some of my happiest memories is during covid and you know we're all in the kitchen you know making yeah. homemade bread together or yeah. the rahas you know, we made the different so yeah the different meals and things and that and, and then the excitement that everybody, you know, brings to, you know, being a part of what they're going to do in the meal yeah. prep. And like, it was very much a family thing. In fact, that was kind of interesting as well, because right before, um, cause Thanksgiving was happening right before, uh, Augie died and somebody, one of your, you know, coworkers or something and said, Oh, well, is Stacy going to be making a big Thanksgiving meal? And you're like, no, we do it together as a family. Oh, yeah. right, right. It's not just the mom's job to just kind of knock that stuff out. It's right. That's part of our joy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we've always been like thing. that. Yeah. We would all help for, you know, the Thanksgivings. It wasn't just... But some people very much are like, oh, my mom makes that, and then I just show up, right. which is yeah. kind of like not the point, you know? Right, and so that's one of those, like, Matt... I mean, of course, this we didn't we didn't do Thanksgiving not this, this year. year. But uh, but that idea that, like, that was so much of part of it was the, the togetherness and preparing together. Yeah. So Sydney, what, when you think about your life growing up, what are what are some ways in which food is either kind of got a positive or negative feeling for you? Well, so in a negative feeling, I always observed um and I've talked about this with my mom before. She used to kind of have an eating disorder and place a lot of her personal worth on her appearance, and so I always remember her, you know, being really thin and I kind of just observed that and internalized that and that made me start thinking around like seven or eight years old oh I shouldn't be eating and then I kind of would yo-yo with my weight based off of like sometimes when I was sad I would emotionally eat and then I would feel sad that I noticed that made my body change and then I would fixate on that for like several years and then I'd go you know the other direction but as far as specific memories, I have a lot of um, different things. I do remember. Have I talked about the cupcake story? No. I don't think so. So I remember being five. And at the time, it's just me and my mom in our house. And it's her birthday. And so we're going to make cupcakes. And we, you know, make the cupcakes together. We would always bake together. And then, you know, we sit down to eat them. And my mom isn't going to eat a cupcake. And I'm like, but mom, it's your birthday. I made these for you. And she was like, oh, it's okay. And I just remember that that made me so sad that I was like, if I were her, I would just 
eat the damn cupcake because it's my kid made it for me for my birthday. I don't even like cake. I don't like cupcakes. But it was just such a sad, you know, thing. And it's it happens a lot. I think people see their mothers or their parents doing this and it creates these patterns. And, you know, the whole time you're looking at Barbie and, and TV and everything online or whatever. All the actresses. But also, um, you know, I know my mom had a history of abusing diet pills in the past under pressure to be thin. And I started doing that in from middle school through sections of high school. I would take these diet pills and not eat very much. And even to this day, I feel like it's affected my heart a little bit. Um, so, yeah, it's just crazy the amount of pressure. And specifically in Orange County, there's a lot of emphasis on your physical appearance being your only value. You know, all the cheerleaders, ballerinas, people's parents don't talk to them, but they care what they look like. People are getting nose jobs and, and boob jobs in high school because their parents want them to be more attractive. And that's, you know, not to be negative about plastic surgery if that's what you want to do. But when that's a expectation, like I've had friends who their parents have said, you need a boob job. Wow. Like that's Orange County to I me. don't know. I would say that that's, it's, we don't want to be, you know, you know, just always, you know, ripping on people, but that's like, a, that's a problem. It's traumatic. <laughs> that is a really big problem. And, you know, it comes it's an area where people have a lot of money. And so a lot of these girls were, you know, 15 and they are getting spray tans, extensions, nails always done, like spa treatments, whatever, like little bit of liposuction here or there. And that was going on. Um, such a young age. It's yeah. disturbing to well, me. One of the things that, you know, just again on the, the, the physical body or whatever and, and, and not being able to, like be natural uh there was a time when my mom she you know not that long ago but was had you know sort of trying different medications or whatever for her health and one of them was causing her skin to be like really wrinkly and um like it just it was like lose elasticity yes and um and you know she loves laying out she loves you know the sun tanning. and being and yeah, tanning and like being in a bathing suit and all sorts of things. And she had made a comment that if, you know, if her skin doesn't go back, that she would never, you know, want to ex- like even wear short sleeves or anything, you know, she just wanted to hide her skin. And that's so sad. Cause I mean, your body, especially now after Augie and everything, it's like your body is just what you're temporarily hanging out in, like, you know, take care of yourself. But well, And what I had said to my mom at the time was like, it would be really sad if for the rest of your life, you gave up on something that did bring you so much joy and happiness. Yeah. And because of your own sense of shame, right? Because your, your own sense of shame. And I said, and, and then mom, like, what message do we send other women and in the young girls when we think that at a certain point like our bodies we shouldn't they shouldn't be seen that then then they don't realize what natural aging even looks like Mm. because you know you need to cover your what that is up yeah and you know i think young women need 
to understand what will happen to them mm-hmm. as they get older. And it's Absolutely. okay. Well, and even <laughs> that natural. concept that, you know, they say men just get more distinguished and then women get like, they just become like <laughs> trash. Old. Don't it's take that like, away from that's me. That's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Joking. And so I just think it's yeah. so, it's so sad. Uh, you know, those of you that do have, you know, kids and stuff, just think of what messages like that You're we're sending, sending. Our, our kids just from, you know, and we don't even realize it could be as innocent as just a comment about. If they see food you hating or, yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That might be internalized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably better to talk about it if it's an issue. And and the way that we we jack up ego in general is something to worry about, uh, not worry about, but to address with kids. Because you know, um, I was growing up with my good friend Scott Copeland, who is you know pushing close to seven foot tall at a, at a young age. And people thought that the very first thing they'd always talk about with him is, you know, whether he's a basketball player or they'd comment on his height. And this was deeply hurtful towards towards him. But a lot of times people didn't think it was a problem because they were coming from a world in which they were embarrassed that they were short. Right. Or or society didn't look down upon tall people. Right. So even when you think that what you're doing is you're complimenting somebody, whether it's that they're thin or that they're tall or whatever... Uh, you don't know. It's, it's very hard. On. Yeah, you gotta yeah. really understand at least a human being that you're talking to before you start weighing in on their appearance, because there's there can be all sorts of joys and hurts all wrapped up into that. Um, but you know, to the to the food thing, uh, Sydney, there is something that I find interesting historically mm-hmm. about something that you don't tend to like. You don't like milk. I hate milk. <laughs> now, milk's milk, and also, I mean, especially like a good milk. I can, I can yeah, appreciate it. We've I'm, been cutting it out. It's psychological. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> I'm talking about the milk thing. Yeah. Okay. So basically, um, during the period of my life when I was in foster care, I had this foster mom who thought that nutritionally, kids have to drink this big, tall pint glass, basically, of milk to have healthy bones or not have your bones be brittle and break when you're old or whatever, something like that. And so I hated it because I would get full because you can't like when you're five necessarily finish your whole plate and a big glass of milk. That's like very filling. And she would get upset at me for not being able to finish it. And it stressed me out. And my grandma always did the same thing in our house um, and with my cousins. And so even when she'd go to the bathroom, I'd give my milk to my cousins and they'd drink it for me cause they felt bad. Cause they knew that I just hated it so much. And to this day, I don't drink milk. I honestly don't even like seeing someone drink a glass of mm. milk. Um, <laughs> I'm very weird about, um, my dairy because of it, but I think it's because it was a, a forceful thing. Mm-hmm. It made me reject it. And yeah, now it just feels like so repulsive to me. Like I think about it and I get nauseous. <laughs> now there's something, now th- this, this sounds like, okay, you know, kids, we, we develop aversions to this or that. Yeah. But I want to, I want to, at least before, before we conclude the show, I want to just bring in a little bit of the history of this because I think it does tie it all together. We're talking about on the show, full spectrum emancipation, the concept being Every aspect of our lives is interconnected with the other. So if I want to get free in terms of my eating habits, I'm going to have to address my spirituality, my psychology, and my economic situation, right? So if I want to get healthy with my food, but I live in a place where all I can find is a subway, then maybe that's better than the, you know, Arby's, 
but I'm still not living in a world where I've got as many choices, right? So the, the economic condition is going to affect my diet, my spiritual state, etc. Well, here's the thing about money, power, and glory. And here's how Molek fits into Sydney's dislike of milk. You not liking milk is in some deep sense, I think, right on the nose. It's right on track because... It's not go, even healthy for you too, well, like as yeah. much as they were saying. Well, let go back. Yeah, go ahead. So about like so, you know, basically we think you know a couple hundred thousand years ago, people are living on this planet. Human beings are are basically like us. And if you went back two hundred thousand years ago and you taught and you were able to find some kind of language to communicate, you'd be surprised that these people in the ancient ancient past would be relatively smart. They'd have emotions. They'd have tender relationships with their family, and that's. Like so long ago that it's be before black and white, right? But at that time, it seems like almost nobody, nobody drank milk. That was not mm-hmm. something that you would do. But, uh, and therefore, almost all human beings uh, have lactose intolerance, at least originally. Uh, they would have, by the time they were toddlers, they would no longer produce the enzyme that would break down the milk. Then about eight to 10,000 years ago, um, and, and please forgive me because I'm doing this kind of from memory. Uh, my friend Josh Swamidas talks about um, this. There's this uh, bottleneck of population. So it seems that either there was a bunch of war or there was a, some kind of uh, climate change that pr- produced famine. And some cultures that learned how to drink cow milk survived. So like the, the I think like the Messiah of Tanzania, mm. people that lived... In the so-called land of milk and honey, that's what they used to mm-hmm. call like the Holy Land, mm-hmm. the, 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 that part of the world, um, people started to survive. And, and the, the key is, if everybody in your, in your region is facing starvation and death, and some people are lactose intolerant and they don't drink the milk, then the only people left are all going to be more, you know, like in the, the Tanzania, the Messiah in Tanzania, um, the, their ancestors were the ones that could drink the milk. But for mm-hmm. the most part, human beings, you know, it's not, it's not the main thing that you want to have in your diet. But then the Molech goes to war. Molech versus Molech. It's the, the, the World War I, this human, human catastrophe, World War I, right? Young men were forced to go off to a war that they didn't even understand. And people that opposed the war were thrown into jail or in the case of people like Emma Goldman, they were... They were they kicked out of, my, out of the country. But what they needed to do to send all these troops into those, those miserable trenches was they needed to feed them. And so what the American government did is it convinced and motivated through various means farmers in America to shift what they were doing in their original farming practices and to get on board with making Dairy. milk because yeah. they turned it into powdered milk and they shipped that out to the troops so they could feed the troops with the calcium and the protein, right? So now you've got this artificial shift in what people are eating so that young men can go die in battle. I mean, that's an and interesting And they start adding pain. hormones to it eventually. And... The hormones and the technologies become crueler. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, you, if you're having cheese in an old English cottage, you know, it's like, you know, the cow. Hey, Bessie, you know, you right, can milk the cow. Right. These cows go into this kind of nightmarish landscape of just being st- stuck to these machines. Yeah, these I've machines, the machines... Videos made sense when you're trying to have this massive food production problem war ends now you don't need to send off all this milk the milk product to 
the European fronts. Mm -hmm. Instead, you've got all this extra dairy farming, and what happens by the time you get to the 30s, you've got the Dust Bowl, you've got, uh, you've got poverty, you've got unemployment, and the milk farmers go on strike. Because now everybody's making milk, but the demand has gone down. Mm -hmm. So there's not a lot of demand for milk. So what the government does is they, they pay them for this milk and they, they just dump it. They, so they don't know what to do with it. So, well, you, that's, then people say, that's horrible. Yeah, Why right. are you dumping the milk? Right. Well, guess what? You, you don't want to dump the milk. So what are you going to do? You're going to give it to poor kids. And so what happened, by the time you get to the 1940s, there was a subsidized program for poor kids in schools. And every kid that was in these programs was forced to get a one and a half to two pints of whole milk a day. Because, and, and to be fair... If you're trying to... There's no other food. You need that. Yeah, these kids are malnourished. But then um, there is this whole... Not only is there the National School Lunch Program, which you you know you have to have this carton of daily milk. I remember having this. Mm -hmm. I had it too. Yeah, so you go to school, you're the poor kid, you got the little ticket and mm -hmm. they're going to give you milk. And I suppose, you know, like that's that's going to be healthy enough. A lot of kids were lactose intolerant and didn't realize how it was affecting them. Mm. Yeah. But they were forced... To drink it, even though it wasn't that they were being bad, they're just bodies were. And when you're hungry, you're you know maybe looking forward to that because that's gonna make you not be in pain. <laughs> but here's the last part of the story, which is the government then not only is trying to to there's this weird relationship with the farmers. There's an artificial relationship, a non-Dow relationship with agriculture. Yes. There's a non-Dow relationship with our fellow human beings in the war. There's a non-Dow situation where now we're, we're propping up the, the dairy industry because we got ourselves into this mess. Instead of getting them to grow something else, <laughs> we're now just trying to fix the problem by creating a new pro problem, which is then you've got these campaigns that are basically telling parents, if you don't force your kids to have milk, they're going to be scrawny pieces of, of junk. <laughs> they're not going to be healthy, and, and it's your fault. So Their if, bones are going to break. Yeah, if, you're, yeah. if your kid's got scoliosis, that might be, that might be your fault for, <laughs> uh, for not forcing them to have milk. So therefore, there's this kind of, this ripple, what I'm saying is, there's this ripple that we don't even see that leads to, in a sense, you're having a bad time with milk in the 90s, and it goes all the way back to the beginning of the century yeah. when well, this other corruption was going on. And I mean, the other thing that's just kind of interesting to me is uh, chocolate milk, because at my school, every once in a while, they did have a few oh, yeah. of the chocolate milks. And if you got mm. there early enough, then you can get that. But it was definitely super sweet. I uh, remember people going nuts after that. Though. That was like a big <laughs> yes. deal. Yes. And then once that's over, then you're left with, you know, the other milks. But uh, the obviously nonfat being the last that would be grabbed. And then yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, I wouldn't be surprised though, if the chocolate milk was a way for them to move more of the product. I, I know. I and so I guess what I'm trying to say is at my house growing up, I just remember it was totally great to have, you know, well, we had sometimes the, the quick, the Nestle quick powder. Oh, uh, God. And then also <laughs> the actual like liquid chocolate syrup. And, my parents didn't care how much we were, how much of the like chocolate we were putting in there. Yeah, because like the milk is healthy for you, right? And so it's just crazy to think uh, how sweet I used to make my <laughs> chocolate milk. Yeah, that's a lot of syrup. 
friends. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, well, that goes like, back to our original point. Like, how are you supposed to be healthy when this is like this is your toolbox in the kitchen, right? right? right. But now you got strong bones, so it's all fine. <laughs> it's all good, <laughs> At least right? that's there. Yeah. Well, the point is... Well, as well as I just remember, even so, even like a healthy cereal like grape nuts... I would put spoons of <laughs> refined sugar. <laughs> you know? yeah. I don't even know how healthy grape nuts are. I, mean, I don't know. If <laughs> they're that's, very that's healthy. Bio, they, they're they? little like not when clusters you put the of iron. sugar. I like don't know, true. It, though, I but so. it used to be healthy. <laughs> they're supposed but. to be good for pregnancies because they have like a lot of like folic acid or something like that and iron. Um. My mom actually started craving them for her second pregnancy because I think her body just needed like more nutrients. Well, that's yeah. good because we're not getting enough iron. But maybe. if you yeah, you put the sugar yeah. on it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I'm talking spoonfuls, you know, yeah, like I, that's wild. I wasn't really told that I should hold back on the sugar. You know, uh-huh. one of the things that was, you didn't uh, even know it was bad. You're well, like, this right. is like flavor. Um, yeah. Like yeah. I'm going to take I mean, the other cereals I had a choice from were like Lucky Charms or Tricks or mm-hmm. Cocoa Pebbles was a big one. Yeah. You know, so I, I don't know, like I'm doing really good picking the, you know, the healthy one. The healthy one. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, it's just interesting. Uh, the other thing, too, is my grandma always made the best carrot cake. And that's Ooh. the thing that she would make um, for Do we every have holiday. this recipe? We do. Ooh. I refused to make it the way she made it when I saw the recipe. Okay. Because I just in the, the cake part alone was four cups of sugar. That's a lot. That's a lot. And then there's more sugar in the, the icing as well. And so I when I made it. I definitely cut back on the on the sugar, mm-hmm. so I don't know. Um, but we should revisit the recipe and make some tweaks to it because it really has yeah. some good bones. <laughs> but but again, like you know, just not realizing how bad that much sugar. So is So no one for really you. like taught you about food, or well, I would say all three of us. No one really ever sat down and taught us about food. Like right. oh, you need. Iron from spinach for your body, or no one ever talked about the this. only the only th- way that I ever got something like that was from the schools when they give you that food chart and there's so much. And the food chart was based on yeah, other dairy? political issues, <laughs> right? Yeah. Lies. All they of, had to add it in. All of yeah. the grains and the, so all the bread that they thought you should be eating and the milk stuff or whatever, like that was just super. Meat was huge. Yes. Yeah. So that was the only you know the school teaching me. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Even like bread. <laughs> yes. How like, much grain. What? But and they like, never really they never talked about about the different kinds of bread. Like we had a really wonderful no. sprouted bread today, and that was good. But it was delicious. Right. No, I didn't hear anything about sprouted it bread. Was just ever. Like the it was just like the enriched wheat. Right. Well and and for me at my my house, yeah, usually <laughs> it was always we would just call it white bread, right? The like the wonder bread. <gasps> yeah. And I didn't like you know, the, the wheat bread. Cause that like, and that was, that seemed healthy. Even, <laughs> even the, 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 the wheat bread that was like a, you know, cheap now that I wouldn't cheap even wheat bread in those days was terrible, but yeah, but I, I still it yeah. seemed like it seemed like but something. It, it seemed like it was too healthy. Cause it just doesn't taste good. You're like, this must be this healthy. Yeah. I want, I want the airy white fluffy yeah. one. Now, you know? we were talking about positive and negative Sorry. foods. And I just had a remembrance of something that was positive. Of all the, of all the poor foods I had, like peanut butter spoons, um, uh, sometimes we do like refried beans with a little ketchup on it. That was good. Uh, but I, I uh, or mayonnaise toast. Those are things that I ate because I could survive. But there was only one of the things I just had a remembrance of something I loved. Hmm. And that is I would take a piece of white Weber bread 
Mm-hmm. And I would peel off the crust, feed that to the dog. Yes. And then I would <laughs> squeeze as my, all I could to do, I could make like a little ball of dough out of the white oh, bread. Yes, and I then I could dip it in a little bit of butter. Mm-hmm. And then I would eat that. That, that was a, a good, good snack. <laughs> and it's also kind of fun. <laughs> well, and do the tactile piece of it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I remember my mom making, they were like, like, Butter tortillas, flour tortillas, warming. Oh. My mom made that too. And putting lots of butter on. You and toast it. Mm-hmm. Did you ever do that? Well, it, I folded it into quarters and you toast it with the butter. It was on never inside. toasted. Mm-hmm. It was always just like heated up and then rolled into this nice little buttery <laughs> tortilla. Yeah. Anyway, I... <laughs> So friends, you know, thanks for hanging out with us. We're just kind of processing some stuff today. So it's a little bit of a different show, but we're glad you could uh, come along for the ride with us. And, you know, as we encourage you to just get to know your food and honor your, your body and, and, and think about what are the assumptions that people are bringing to the expectations for what you're supposed to make. And I think also focusing on health and not, um, appearance or what you look like or trying to be a certain way nourishment rather than deprivation right um joy rather than fear and i don't know the the more that you can actually sort of i want to say have a relationship with your food but in a good way yeah you should have a relationship that you're honoring it as you're preparing it and and it and less of a chore but more of a gift that creation you know that gift to yourself right and 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 you actually are getting fed and then that's where you know you can start to feel a little bit more of that deep peace upon peace Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP. And rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? That's because you found this letter low too much.